Welcome to the Calibre podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. In this episode, Brian Duffy, CEO of the group, talks to Rob Diver, Managing Director of Tag Heuer. They discuss the heritage of the brand, the legacy of the iconic pillars and how they've developed over the decades to maintain that legitimacy in a commercial market and hold the position of the number two watch brand in the UK today. So hello everyone and uh, welcome to this podcast. Uh, my name is Brian Duffy. I'm the Chief Exec of the Watches of Switzerland Group and delighted that you've uh, decided to join us. Uh, I have as my guest today Mr. Rob Diver, uh, who's the Managing Director of uh, Tag Heuer for the, for the UK and Ireland. And welcome, Rob. Thanks for joining us. I've been in this business seven years and one of the first persons I met at the beginning was, uh, was Rob and he's always been a, a great partner to our business here in the UK and a good advisor to me getting to know this uh, wonderful world of uh, Swiss watches. Um, and it would be good, Rob, just to get us going, just give us a wee bit of background as to how you managed to find yourself in the, this great job that you've got. Yeah, and of course I can. I mean, it goes back many, many years. Going back to sort of college time, I was at college and I always had a fascination for more engineering-led led things until ultimately the college said to me, you know, you're not that good at college. Maybe you should start your career. So... I left and went out to work, started insurance, did very well, but realised it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I then went back to college, trained to become a legal executive, and then left that after three years. I think I was what was classifying as getting a rounded education in yeah. the working world. So jack of all trades, I think they call it. Then I moved and started working for Whitbread, which was really nice because my, my grandfather used to work for Whitbread and my great-grandfather used to work for Whitbread making beer up in London in Chisel Street. And uh, it was always nice you've got some sort of family background in the business. So I worked there for 10 years, finishing in 99, started in sales, finished in the strategy department there, running part of that or working with them there, dealing a lot with the route to market of products. And then I saw an advert for the sales manager of Tag Heuer. And I owned a Tag Heuer and I thought, oh, I quite like this. And I got frustrated that working for a brand that, that the company wasn't as reverential about the brand as they should be you know if you work with something you want to aspire to it you want to love it you want to feel some part of it and as I owned a tag or I saw the position and I thought I like that went for it and got it I mean I remember years ago I, I bought my first tag hoy from a store in uh, Farnham I mean oh, you're in Farnham with the goldsmiths there but I bought my first tag hoy there uh, an old SEL in 1997-98 so, and then I started with Tag Heuer when it was an agent rather than a subsidiary and worked my way through the organization from sales manager, commercial manager, brand director to managing director in 2010. And yeah. I say, I've been there 21 years. I'm probably, I'm actually, I'm one of the oldest, or should I say one of the ones with the longest tenure is probably a nicer way of saying it. Yeah. But we have quite a few people in our business that have done 25 years. And we have a quite a good balance between some people that have done 25 years and some people that have done five years. Yep. You know, the challenge is always to keep keep the knowledge but gain new ideas. It's get that yep. balance between the two. So, and I love it. It's my second family. It's, yep. um, it's a great business to be in. It's a great brand to work for. It's a very exciting, it's very sports orientated. And, you know, you either well, like watching sports and doing sports and I find it good fun. And the other good thing is, you know, we get to do some nice things and we've got some really nice customers and also consumers. Yeah. So, so that's a little bit about the background of how I came to be in this position. Uh, it's fun. I'm very privileged. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we all are to be in, the, in this business, you know, that uh, 
we can get a bit blinded by it. You're yeah. just working day in day, but when you stand back and look at it, what a kind of wonderful, uh, wonderful world for us uh, for us to be in. And I can, can you know confirm that dealing with Tag Heuer and your team, it really does feel like a family that's having fun, and uh, and uh, your whole team is very very good to interact with. We we like to say yes. Right. Rather than no. Yeah. Obviously, the parameters You obviously need... haven't spent so much time in Switzerland. <laughs> no. <laughs> the parameters need to be right. It's not yep. about just saying sure. yes frivolously, but we like to try and find a way to say yes yep. if we can. Yeah. And as you said earlier, you're talking about your, the attraction of Tycoon, a brand that you would aspire to and aspire to make better. And distribution and positioning and all that is yeah. you know, uh, critical to it all. So we're going to talk through the, the, the history of... Um, of the brand and and the, the history that was made of what the brand stands for was when it was the Hauer company, mm. a truly Swiss company that really got going in it. I think really important era, late 19th century, early 20th century, when wristwatches were, you know, really becoming the uh, the product du jour, if you like, and a great deal of innovation was happening around then. And Edward Howard starts his company at the ripe old age of 20. And I'm all, I mention it almost every time that these young guys that seem to have this great yeah. spirit and all that about them. But, but he apparently was training from the age of 14. Yeah. And I mean, you get it now in technology companies when you yeah. suddenly find a, a CEO has built up a company to a huge amount of money and he's 17 yeah. working from his bedroom, which yeah. is unbelievable. And I guess it's the same sort of comparison nowadays. Yeah. Well, I mean, places like Show de Fond, Valley de Jou, we describe as the Silicon Valley of its yeah, time. Absolutely. Which it uh, yeah. really was a great home of, uh, yeah. of innovation and, uh, and so on. So Edward Howard starts the company in Saint-Emir. Yep. Chronographs from the beginning. And, and what I should have said is when you talk the history of the Howard company, it's the history of chronographs when you look at the, the great achievements over the years. Yeah, yeah, many. I mean, if you look at us as a brand, I mean, it started with chronographs and moved into sports, but sports and chronographs were inextricably linked. Whereas you look at other brands and they start on a more luxury timekeeping basis as a delicate, beautiful wristwatch. Yep. You know, we are, you know, we're luxury sports watches and our history is all about chronographs and our history is all about sports. Yep. And, um, you know, when we go through the list of sports, it's unbelievable the things they've been involved in. Predominantly a lot of motor racing, of course. One of the most exciting sports, as you can imagine. Yeah, but way back at the beginning, a lot of dashboard chronographs were getting made to, to exactly, yeah. as you say, support these sporting achievements, the measurement of speed, the time of trip, as it was called. Yeah, in uh, 1911. Yeah, and again, a great time. You know, we've again, at different podcasts, we've talked about that's when Rolex were, were beginning to happen. It's when... So when Omega were really getting focused on the wristwatches, it's when Cartier were, were clearly bringing out what they would say was the first uh, wristwatch. So a really, really critical time around the, the pre-war. Yeah, I mean, years. we did the obviously the time of trip in 1911, but also in 1914, we were one of the first to put the, you know, move the chronograph and put it on the wrist, yep. which, you know, everybody used to have a pocket watch. Yep. And now they put it on the wrist. And not only that, but, you know, you move on from that. And in 1916, then we talk about dividing the the measurement of the second to one hundredth of a second. Yeah. And that's where obviously our obsession with the timekeeping, the inaccuracy of timekeeping came in. Yeah. Obviously that's what chronographs do, but if you can divide it down that much, yeah. you know, it's an amazing technology, especially back in nineteen sixteen. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And in more recent times dividing the second into a Yeah, thousand yeah. yeah. I happened to, I've got one of them. Oh, okay, uh, actually, amazing. I think I think I mean I can't remember was it called the 
micrograph the, uh, yeah. uh, display and, and, and so on. And of course, you were doing all the timekeeping for the Olympics in that yeah. great period of the 1920s. Yeah, we're not, we, we're not really allowed to talk about it anymore at the moment. Oh, yeah. Obviously, with the current incumbent of the timekeeping of the Olympics, yeah. we're, we're not allowed to. But yeah, we were the timekeepers of the Olympics yeah. uh, back in the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you were there, Paris 1924, and one of my heroes, Eric Liddell. I don't remember was, that. Oh, I'm sure you do. Famous <laughs> Scotsman throwing his head back and taking off to the sound of Vangelis and yeah. Harold Abrahams, yeah. you know, uh, get, getting uh, measured by who, who was a guy, um, Sam Massapini. I think, he, I think he was the. Uh, I loved that. Your movie. memory's Char- better than mine. Charlie's a fire. I really loved the movie. Yeah. But I do remember um, Sam Massabini there yeah. with the uh, the um, chronograph in his hand, obviously the pocket chronograph, uh, measuring the speeds of Harold Abrahams, and I really, I really, you know, great romantic time, obviously, to be associated with Absolutely. the Olympics through the through the twenties. Then it's amazing the the Otavia that we talk about, uh, and before I looked at the again at the history. Somebody said to me, when did that come about? I'd have said the 60s or 70s. But the first Otavia, again, is a, dash, a dashboard done back in 1933. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things that we think are brand new, but so many of the world is cyclical. Yeah. And uh, it's like fashion, although our, 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 our turnaround is not as fast as fashions. Yeah, yeah. Far from it. But yeah, no, the, uh, the Otavia came out in uh, 1933 as a dashboard. And obviously, Otavia is a combination of automobile and aviation. And there were many different versions that came through throughout. And then Jack Hoyer, who's who comes into the business a little bit later than that, comes in in sort of 1958. He brings a slightly different dimension, and his passion is motorsports. So it's it's very interesting to see how that comes through, because a lot of the things that were done um, fitted in really nicely with this, this idea of more of motorsports. Uh, and he focused an awful lot on chronographs and some of his de- developments now we're, we're you know are bearing fruits many years ago and we live on what he's been doing on very different um of different the series basically a lot of it comes from jack hoyer's time at the beginning yeah and so he was the fourth generation of the Hoyer yeah. family yeah i think it was a great great grandson but uh, but a wonderful man. We actually had the uh, the pleasure. My colleague Mark Tolson had the pleasure of doing a doing a podcast with yeah. him and yeah. uh, and hearing directly from him his yeah. stories about racing, about the naming of the Carrera, and then his story about the whole Monaco and the yeah. Steve I mean, McQueen was amazing. What's sad in a lot of companies now is that they don't have the the generations staying through it. It's very very small numbers of companies. Yeah. Fortunately, with with our company as a whole, the parent company. We pay a lot of credibility on you know carrying the generations or having people through the different generations in the business. But Jack Hoyer left the business and then came back to the business as an honorary position. And this year, actually, we celebrate his 88th birthday. Yeah, amazing. And uh, they still benchmark things against him. So when we yeah. launched the Carrera, the latest version of the Carrera, a little bit earlier on this year, we took it to him and said, is this yours? Because if he says, I can see myself in that watch, yep. then you know you're doing something right. So it was great to have him in there. Unfortunately, we don't see him very often now. He's 88, of course. Yep. Um, but it's lovely when we do see him. And he's such a very, very, he's a gentleman. Yeah. Um, really nice guy. And I can tell you, he's got a lovely voice. He's yeah. got a really lovely, yeah. soothing and convincing and interesting voice. So- You'd want him as your dad. Yeah, no, yeah. no, sure, but uh, but like you say, a lovely man. And he was mentioning too that you know one area that he really studied at college was about you know visibility uh, overall, and and he was the one therefore insisting dials were what he was all yeah. about, and really making sure that the dials were 
what are visible and legible. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, you can see that in the Carrera, and you can also see that you know where his absolute forte was 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 that legibility of reading the product or reading the dials. But also, sometimes people forget that you know he's one of his main contributions, not just to us, but also you know the watchmaking industry was not just the the recognition of all the different milestones that come through the square dial Monaco because he's got water resistance on stuff like that. But marketing, he went to Ferrari in 1971, and they they talked about okay, how can they work? And Ferrari at this time was was you know wasn't winning anything and uh part of the company had been i think sold back to fiat and um so they stepped in and they struck a deal i'm sure probably no money changed hands at all but jack got hoyer on the front of on the nose of ferraris oh. and uh, there's a really the, the line goes that enzo ferrari signed something with his violet pen he used to sign everything in violet color so that's one of the very first sports sponsorships yeah. Uh, you know, you see what happens now on sports sponsorship. So you could say that he was, you know, was, he was a trailblazer in his time of marketing the company. And we did a partnership from 71 to 79. All sorts of drivers, Lauda, Regazzoni, and all yeah. those were, were, were driven with Hoyer patches. And some of them even had gold Carreras that were gifted to them by yeah. Jack Hoyer. Yeah. So uh, he's delivered more than just we think sometimes you have to dig a little bit and thank you for inviting me here because sometimes only when you dig a little bit and look back in the archives you actually see hold on a minute there's some amazing stories there some amazing things yeah no I think he is an, an amazing guy very humble with it all too yeah, yeah. he very much I know appreciates his status as a as honorary chairman and yeah. so on but when you look at what he, what he did contribute and he clearly was a visionary marketeer because it, but we'll talk in a second about uh, about the Monaco and yeah. the movie Le Mans yeah. and so on uh, but he had also he came up with a name Carrera, yeah. talking to the the mother of two boys that were racing. Yeah, Rodriguez cons- brothers. Yeah, yeah. She was concerned about them racing in the Pan Americana race yeah. because it was notorious for uh, for accidents and the. Well, eventually, eventually it was cancelled yeah. because it was so dangerous. Yeah, um, it was the fifties, I think. Wasn't yeah, fifty four, I think. Uh, you yeah. made me do my homework. That's yeah. one one I did have to look up. That yeah. uh, I think it was nineteen fifty four. They cancelled it, yeah. just because there was too many deaths on it. Um, but yeah, an amazing time, amazing yeah. time. A big year, 1954, I won't tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> but he came up with the name Carrera back then, yeah. uh, uh, amazing. And, yeah. uh, and then obviously, and, and again, he tells it very, very well in the, the podcast that we did with him, uh, the race that was going on to produce the first automatic chronograph. Yep. And then, you know, like a London bus, and you know, uh, then three of them come along at, at once. And uh, he also tells that it was a very, uh, if you like, gentlemanly type race. There was nobody jumping out there saying, we won, you didn't, whatever. And it was very complimentary about the Seiko watch that was done in the same, I think, a month or two earlier, technically, although it wasn't in production. But a great collaboration with uh, with Tag and Breitling and uh, Hamilton uh, back then. And Uh, Zenith as well. Yep. Um, I think it's an interesting time because, you know, at, at certain crunch times, companies come together. Sometimes it takes a strange set of circumstances. Normal business, people say, oh, we won't work together. But actually, there's very, there are a lot of exp- uh, examples of suddenly people start working together. So a few companies worked together. Obviously, everybody was racing to get it to the market first and say it was us. Yeah. But there was a few that they were all together and doing it. Uh, and it was a great period that they managed to do that 
Because then, you know, what happened after that is you start to get, business starts to get a bit tougher, you start to go into crisis. Yep. Um, and a lot of this development was was put on the back burner for quite some time. So, um, but it was at that very sort of seminal moment that you you get not just that movement, the autochronograph, but you also get the development of the Monaco, as we referenced earlier. Yep. And, you know, with the Monaco there, there was nobody that was producing a square watch that was waterproof. Yep. And Jack managed to find the, the, the companies that he could work with to do it and brought that. And, you know, history has been written now about Monaco many, many times. Yep. But it's still really, really interesting to hear it through. Yeah, I mean, it's another great story again. Circumstances yeah. and kind yeah. of determination at the end of the day. But as Jack tells his story, I mean, obviously that when you developed or when Tag Heuer developed, the automatic uh, chronograph, you put it into the three chronographs, so the three models back then, the Carrera, the Tavia, and the, and the Monaco. And uh, Jack had um, had somebody working on his behalf getting product placements in yes. movies in Hollywood. And um, so they had the opportunity of, of getting uh, a chronograph in the Le Mans movie, uh, but they had to have at least seven. Yeah. And the only the only model that they had seven of was uh, was the Monaco, yeah. so it became the Monaco. Well, the... Um uh, it's quite good because you had the, the driver there, Joe Seifert. Name almost escaped me for a minute there because there was so was quite a few of them wearing the watches. But he had he was like a an unofficial ambassador for uh, for Hoyer, oh, a close friend of of, of Jack. And uh, Steve McQueen looked at him and said, "I I want to look like him." Yeah. And he had his Hoyer patch on. He was wearing the Monaco and what like that. And yeah. you know, so history is written. I'm not sure you get those sorts of things nowadays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's how it came about. And it was amazing. It was amazing to sit, to, to hear all the story and make people come up about it. And, you know, uh, Steve McQueen as a, an icon within you know, filmmaking and also an icon within Hoyer, Tag Hoyer, you know, he, you know, he had a, it was a little bit of a checkered background. But we don't like our heroes to be uh, yeah. perfect. We no. like our heroes to have a little bit about them. Maybe he went a little bit too far, but... Um, but yeah, no, it's it's an amazing story, and you see some of the imagery that we still use for McQueen. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's lovely to be in the position to be able to use that up. Yeah, that it's one of the most iconic images yeah. in this industry and in the movie industry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's funny how things work out because the um, the product is so visually distinctive: the yeah. blue, the square. Yeah. And uh, and one other thing I'd meant to say earlier, I love the I've loved the Howard uh, logo from the beginning, yeah. and so symmetrical. You know, the five letters and yeah. the and and the uh, the V shape, but then you add tag on top of it, which yeah. we'll discuss in a minute why. Sure. But it, yep. it works really, really well. Yeah. And to see it on Steve McQueen. And just while you're saying that, what an epitaph to have. Steve Steve McQueen said, I want to look like him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many people could... Uh, I'm waiting for a few to say they want to look like me, but yeah. I seem to be waiting quite some oh, time. I'm, I'm sure there's a queue there. <laughs> Uh, Rob overall (laughs) then you went into dive watches as well um, uh, the brand did back then and then obviously it was a troubled time back there in the 70s for the industry overall stopping you for a second there the the dive watch is more important than we probably give it credit for the dive watch you could almost say is one of the precursors to the segment of really sports water diving products because you know a lot of those were quartz, uh, and this was just before the the issues that started of uh, Swatch coming in with quartz models, but also the devaluation of, of the dollar meant yeah. that the economy of Swiss watches was in a really perilous situation. And so we developed these dive watches in 1979, and you know, next year 
we'll do some activity to remember that. Um, but, you know, another situation where a lot of the brands got together because back in 1979, Patek Philippe, Rolex, Amiga, ourselves, all were developing quartz diving watches. Yep. So another time when all the watches come together. So it's nice to see that. I mean, obviously, some of these brands are not so keen on shouting about they put produce quartz watches. Um, and obviously, times have changed. But yeah, no, it's another good time for people to come together. But then we moved on to a, um, a tougher time yeah. uh, in the Swiss watch industry, causes, say, by the advent of quartz and also the, the, do the dollar collapsing. Yeah. And that led to then a change of ownership yep. from, from the Hur family. Yep. And uh, what seemed like a really positive one for the, the brand and the business uh, all along when the group Technique Avant-Garde uh, yep. comes along and uh, the company becomes a tag hour. Yep. Well financed, good investors yep. overall and, uh, and, uh, and good for the business uh, overall. Yeah, and I think what was, what was good is when we saw with, with Jack that it was very much product and marketing. Okay, yep. you can live with, with one or you can live with the other, but you put the two together you're in a much better position. And it started with the two, with, with the three guys, uh, Luc Perrimont, Christian Viros, and Philippe Champignon, saw this little company as Hoyer, and they combined it. So they came from, from the tag group. They were doing a project with a group, and they started it. And Christian was the, the CEO and the driving force. Luc was the commercial guy, and Philippe was the, uh, the creative genius. And some of the things that they came up with from our advertising campaigns and combining the great product and advertising campaigns, it really exploded. And it was nice to see that an industry that was almost on its knees was being almost reborn in yeah. a way. And that was the start of the um, the luxury market as we yeah. know it today in the, uh, in, in the 80s. And it obviously worked, broadened out the product range, the brand yeah. really, really gained the, the status and awareness and so on to such a level that along comes the world's uh, biggest luxury group and uh, decides to buy it in 1999. You become part of a LVMH group. Yeah. And uh, another really positive move for the, the brand and the business overall. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, I worked when it was a um, an agent in the UK and clearly there was it was chalk and cheese between one and the other. They didn't jump in and say, you must do this. They were very, very uh, respectful of the fact that, you know, we'd gained good traction on the brand we were doing the right things. But then over the slow course of time, then the expertise came in, the investment came in and what have you. And then it changed the dynamic completely. Yep. I mean, where we are now to where we were in, in 99 is, you know, it's worlds apart, worlds yeah. apart. It really is. So. And a huge emphasis put on innovation. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, we've been able to keep the pace of innovation that the Hoyer family had started. Yep. And, and whether that be... Things like the Monaco V4 that we've done, or we've done we've done micro girders, micro splits, micrographs, which are dividing the second down in many different ways, the thousandth, ten thousandth, uh, an amazing technology, and obviously that the balance of you know what feeds from that onto the core collection. The yeah. same in Formula One, the Kurs kinetic engine recovery system, whatever they call it. You know now. You know, a lot of hybrid cars it's being used in. So Formula One drops technology down and our timekeeping division yeah. with all this different technology slowly dis comes through into the rest of our business. Yep, yep. And also um, really developing in a way that I know the rest of the industry can't understand how you could take a traditional watchmaking skills and make a, a tourbillon, make it available yeah. for, a, for around £16,000. I know when it was introduced. Yes, yes. We did ruffle a few feathers with that one. I can tell you, you yeah. did. Yeah, there were a few people snarling yeah. away at, at seeing that. But again, that's innovation to be able to do that. Yeah. 
and provide it at that price point. I mean, we've been quite provocative in the industry a few times. Uh, that was probably one of the main ones. And um, there's a skill of making a, a tourbillon, an absolute skill. And we mastered it, and we've mastered it ourselves. It's not a subcontract. We've mastered it ourselves. And we put it in the collection. And, um, yeah, we do quite well out of it. No, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sure you do. And you also do really well that are connected. And it's yeah. an, another question that I'm asked continually, the relevance of smart technology and luxury yeah. Swiss watches. And I always reply to investors or, or press that they, they've got nothing to do with one another, with the exception of the LVMH group, and in particular, uh, yeah. Tag, and what you've done with uh, with smart technology. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, there's... you know, Everybody will have a different opinion of it. For me, we have the marketing that, that, that focuses on a certain community but you know I'll go out and I'll see an 80 year old wearing it and I'll see an 18 year old wearing it and for me that's great because it means that you've gone out of your niche you you advertise to your niche but you've gone out of it as well which I always think is is very good but it's you know the more people that are wearing a product the more they'll get a chance of entering the category and trading up through yep. so somebody says oh well, I'll only have a phone I don't need a watch well no you don't need a watch there's lots of things you don't need in the world but you want them yeah so you have, a, you have a phone, you look at the time, and then you think, actually, I could do with something on my wrist that would tell the time and have a few connections because yep. I like it. And also, you know, people who go running. I mean, the great thing about our connected product is uh, our connected watch is that, you know, you can track your runs, you can track your rides on a bike and all sorts of things like that. You can get your emails, you can get your texts, you can yep. do your music on it and stuff like that. So, you know, the person that bought or oh, only said, I'll only have a phone, then, well, okay, maybe I'll have a connected watch. Yep. And then two or three later, years later, they've either got the next version of the connected watch or they've traded on and say, actually, I like this and, and I want something, I want a traditional watch. Yep. And then you can move on to a quartz watch or you can move on to a, an automatic watch. And I think always the beauty of automatic watches, I think the Italians say it really nicely, is that... You know, with an automatic chronograph, such as the one, the Monaco that you're wearing or the one, the Carrera that I have on, is that, you know, the Italians say that you give life to it. Yeah. It would be dead without me. Yeah. Okay, I give life to my watch. I make it live and I make it breathe. And I think that's a lovely phrase. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's a great product, but also it helps us getting people into the category. Yeah. And the more people we can get into the category, the more it's good for the category and not just us, yeah. but the category itself. Yeah. No, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm also happened to be wearing two watches yes. today. So I'm, I'm wearing your latest Ed Tag Connected. And uh, the other thing about it, I love all the technology. It does everything you say that it does yeah. and more, uh, but it also looks beautiful. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been done with such a, a great, uh, you know, aesthetic consciousness as well. It's a beautiful case. Yeah, I mean there are. I mean there are other connected watches out there, but there are none that really look so much as a watch as, as we do. Yeah, and you can see the 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 Carrera look to it. Yeah, um, and it's like a beautiful ceramic bezel. It looks good. It looks like a proper watch. Yeah, yeah, it really no, no, looks it's like gorgeous. A watch. Yeah, I can't promise it everybody that it would look this good on everybody, but uh, <laughs> but I, I, thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoy wearing it. It's a, good. It's a beautiful watch. So so where are we headed with uh, with Tycho, but from a brand positioning and and product uh, innovation, where are we headed? Well, this year we've um, done some work on Carrera. So we launched, um, obviously it's a bit of a strange world to be in at the moment, but we relaunched the latest version of the Connected Watch in March in New York. So we've done that, uh, which has been, in the circumstances, a phenomenal success. Um, 
even without the current troubles that are around in the world, it would still have been a, a great success. So we, we are very pleased about that. And that shows that, you know, you build something beautiful and people will buy it. Yep. We also, this year, probably in August, we relaunched the Sports Carrera, which is the ceramic bezel and the detailing. And what we've just launched recently is the more elegant of the Carreras. And Jack was very much about the original Carrera need to be very legitimate, very clean, very simple to read. So we've categorized it out with sports, which is the more sporty look, and then the elegant, clearly the more elegant look. Um, So we've done that. We have a few launches before the end of this year, a few more Carrera activity. But now there comes a point when you're you're at the end of September, you you need to stop launching products and you need to let the retailers be retailers and focus and concentrate. And it's tough out there from a retailing perspective because of all the... Uh, the rules and regulations, the distancing, the masks, the, 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 the things that you have to consider to protect the public. Now it's a time to leave the retailers to be retailers and, and, yep. and get on with it. We have a couple more coming, but then predominantly we're, back, we're into 2021. And for us, it's about a little bit of an upgrading of the, of the brand. Yep. We are doing the right things for the brand. We don't need to change what we're doing. Yep. So for us, it's fine-tuning and you know everything that you, the, the great brands – they don't change masses. Yeah, it's a little little upgrade. Uh, the, the Carrera that we did this year was a slightly uh, shortening of the lugs to make it easier to wear on the wrist. It was upgrading the bracelet design, and that's, that's the type of thing that we'll be doing next year. We'll yep. do some upgrades on Aquarace that we're working on next year, and some of the other series where we'll look at upgrading bracelets. And it's you know it's a, it's an upgrade all the time. Nothing yep. revolutionary but an upgrade all the time. You know, I think you've got a great position uh, in the market and uh, probably people don't realise you're number two brand in, in the UK, yeah. hugely successful. And I think, Rob, you take a lot of credit for that, actually. Those 21 years have been well spent. I've I've had some very good teams. Thank you, but I've had some very good teams. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I say that too, but I mean it as much as you do. <laughs> um, but I mean, you've clearly positioned the brand very, very well. And we and everything you say about, uh, about Tag Care really resonates well in this market. We love our sports watches. Yeah. We love innovation. We love association with, with great personalities, Ayrton Senna or yeah. Emerson Fittipaldi or, or whatever. We love uh, all, all that goes with that. And, as, uh, and we love a value for money as well. And I think you give tremendous value for money. Products starting at yeah. 1500 get up to 5000 And, and, and even the Tourbillon yeah. get up to 20000 still yeah. represents, yeah. seems crazy to say, but still represents tremendous value for money for what I it mean, is. In, in respect of the, the team, and I just call it out there, I mean, it's... You know, in 21 years, I've had many different teams. Yep. Um, and, you know, I've always found that, you know, today we're good, but tomorrow we need to be a little bit better. Yeah. And uh, if that's the ethos that we work with, we, we do, we're never going to be perfect because we're human beings. But if yep. tomorrow we can be a little bit better than we are today, I think it's a great position to be in. But that is, as I talked about earlier, finding the combination of youth, but also experience yep. and getting the two and actually becoming quite agile. I mean... Now, this year is a bit more difficult, so you have to behave a a little bit more agile. Um, But it is that combination where the older and more experienced will have experienced more downturns, whether it be 2007 or 1985 or whatever the year be. You you need experience to get you through difficult situations. But then you need youth and you need excitement and agility to give you the little bit of a springboard and the catalyst that that shoots you forward. And that's why I probably enjoyed working with Tagoy so much because – you know, it is quite a youthful brand. It is the sports. I mean, I've, 
you know, you talk about Senna. Uh, there's two films that I would recommend people watch if they haven't already. One is the film Rush uh, about the rivalry between uh, Nicky Lauder and James Hunt in 74. Yeah. One's Mr. Perfect yeah. and the other one's Mr. Far From Perfect. Yeah. But between the two of them, they create a rivalry that's written about and for many, many times. And, you know, we have a link there with... You know, Monza, I think, was it. It was celebrated. I think Monza came out in 74, the, the watch that we had, the original one. But then the other one, which is probably a little bit more emotional, is the actual Senna film, which is more a documentary than a film, but it's lots of real-life excerpts from his life pulled together. And I must admit, it made me cry. Yeah. It really did. It's quite an emotional film. I've watched it probably too many times. It's amazing. So some of those things you watch and you see Hoyer on in the background because yeah. we were the brand there yeah. and you know we we probably need to you know shout a little bit more about that because sometimes people think it's tag hoyer you've only been around since 1985 no 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 yeah. we've been around since 18, 1860 we've yeah. been timing the world's best events since 1860 yeah. whether it be in a stopwatch whether it be on a wristwatch whether it be in a, in a, in a an ortavia on a dashboard yeah we've been timing those moments over the many, many years yep. and breaking that moment down into very small fractions. Yeah, yep. no, very well said. And like I say, we get it in the UK, we get it in the US as well. We represent you in the US as well and you have a similar position in that market, yep. similar sensibility. But uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful brand and I really appreciate you, you joining me to tell the, the story of it. My pleasure. Um, which has uh, been a pleasure for me. So thank you, Rob. My pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcast and Spotify.